Good to see you this morning and good to be together. And uh, the, the fields really are white under harvest. And to see the uh, children come, make room after school to come and hear about God and learn about Him and eager to do so and give their lives to the Lord and to plant that incorruptible seed in their life so early in life that God will always be faithful to bring to full fruition. It is a tremendous ministry and opportunity, and we thank the Lord for it. Let's stand together and let's turn in our Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 8. Sunday morning, studying the book of Romans together, and we come now to conclude chapter 8 this morning. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, just uh, wave to one of the men coming up the aisles right now where they have Bibles, and they'll uh, give you one. It'll be marked to our passage that we're studying today. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you uh, today. It is His Word to you personally. Pick things up in verse 35. Paul writes, by the Spirit of God, "'Who shall separate us from the love of Christ?' Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for the power of Your Word. Thank You for the greatness of this truth, the power of this truth, of Your love for us and what it's intended to accomplish within our lives. We pray that You would bind up, Lord, any uh, satanic or demonic opposition to a single one of us, being able to understand the greatness of Your love for us, that none of us would doubt it, not for a moment in our Christian lives. And we pray this morning that You would teach us, Father, about Your love, and sometimes in life, and certainly in the world today that we live in, it's not till we come to know You that we come to even begin to experience love and to understand it. So we thank You for Your love. We pray that You would take the truths off of the printed page this morning and plant them within our hearts and our spirits, and Lord, give them a living place in our personal relationship with You this morning and our understanding of You. And we ask for this work of Your Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. With verses 35 through 39, we really, uh, the Apostle Paul puts the capstone on what is arguably one of the most beloved chapters, not only in the book of Romans, but also in the entire Bible, Romans chapter 8. And he does so by declaring uh, that as Christians, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. In verse 18, as we've seen in recent weeks, he told us, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. In verse 28, he let us know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to His purposes. In verse 31, 
He declares that if God is for us, who can be against us? And then in verse 33, who can bring a charge against God's elect when God justifies us? Verse 34, who is he who condemns when it is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen and at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us? And I mean, he's just mounting one thing after another that he knows that we need to know as Christians about uh, God's activity in our life and His attitude toward us. And this morning, He comes really to the, the, again, the capstone of it in speaking of God's love for us, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Again, Adam and Eve created the single great catastrophe in human history and their sin in the Garden of, uh, of uh, Eden. And that fall, that sin that they committed in that ancient garden introduced a world of suffering into human history. Paul has told us in this chapter that all of creation groans under the weight of what that sin introduced into the creation alone. And, the, and Paul went on to say how it is that every single human being in this world, whether a Christian or not a Christian, bears, uh, suffers as a result of that fall. This life is so far from what God intended it to be and that sin introduced this great suffering into every single human life. No one lives this, in this life or through this life without experiencing not only suffering but great suffering. And Paul has also laid out the fact that for us as Christians, that the suffering that we experience in this world is a result of its fallenness. And we do not, because we are Christians, escape suffering, not at all. In fact, in some ways, the suffering that we face is greater than the suffering anybody else faces, because on top of all of the other suffering that everybody else faces in life and is a part of our life as well, we also face a persecution so often as Christians around the world for simply loving the Lord of the Bible and walking with Him. And there's a spiritual warfare that is directed against us that is never directed in quite the same way against the unsaved or against the world. And if we, in the course of this pilgrimage, somewhere along the line, is it because of the suffering that we face, we begin to doubt the love of God for us, or we begin to uh, esteem God's love and the greatness of it or how big it is in our lives on the basis of whether we're suffering or not, then and, and during times of seasons of suffering, begin to doubt the, the love of God in our lives, then God knows that that's the kind of thing that could really sink us in our pilgrimage as we're walking and making our way from this world and one day into the, the glory uh, of heaven. And Thus Paul poses the question in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of God? And you notice that this does not refer to our love for God, but Paul is talking about God's love for us. And the question that Paul is raising is not whether our love for God will be strong enough to carry us through all of the trials and all of the difficulties of life. But the question he's posing is whether God's love for us is sufficient to do so. I think it's also important to notice that Paul doesn't begin with the question of whether God loves us or not as Christians, but he begins with the question, can anything separate us from the love of God? 
And what Paul does here is he, he assumes, he operates from the assumption that every single Christian has as a part of their foundation of our understanding of God and our relationship with God that God uh, loves us, that this is an important truth and, and, a, and something that, that we understand about God's heart uh, toward us. God loves you. He then, this then raises the question, in terms of God's love for us, the question's really plural. How do we know that God loves us? And then second, what does the love of God look like in our lives? And in the same way, and the love of God looks like in our lives the same way that it looks in any other healthy relationship within our lives. In any healthy relationship within our life, when somebody loves us, that love is expressed verbally. We know that somebody loves us because they tell us, and God tells us in His Word that He loves us. We know that He loves us because He tells us. And from one end of the, uh, the Bible to the other, uh, verse upon verse, passage upon passage, He tells us over and over again that He loves us. He spoke to the children of Israel in the Old Testament, in the law, the book of Deuteronomy, and he spoke of his love for Old Testament saints, for the children of Israel in the Old Covenant, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7. And Moses spoke and said, The Lord has not set His love on you, nor chose you, because you were more in number than other people, for you were the least of all peoples, but because the Lord loves you. And God let the children of Israel know right from the get-go that He didn't love them because they were lovable or something that they could earn from Him, or He didn't love them conditionally uh, on the basis of how good or bad that they were being or something like that. He loved them because He is love, and, and that's the basis of His love for us as, as His children. God loves us because He is so loving. Psalm 63, verse 3, the psalmist declared of God's love, because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Psalm 36, verse 5, your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. God spoke to uh, even a very, very rebellious and deeply chastened uh, children of Israel in the Old Testament through Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, verse 3, famously, the Lord has uh, appeared of, uh, of old to me, saying, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore with loving kindness I have drawn you. You go into the New Testament, and uh, 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 the uh, Apostle John, 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, we love Him because He first loved us. Paul declares it in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 2 verse 4, but God who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive again together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come He might show us the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. 
Again, the Apostle John in his first epistle, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. 1 John 4, 8, He who does not lo love does not know God, for God is love. John chapter 15, verse 9, Jesus spe speaking on this. He said, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. Again, the Apostle John wrote of Jesus' love, this time in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 5, and he says of Jesus, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever Amen. And when we read these passages, and we could spend the rest of the morning reading passages from the Bible that speak of God's love for us, but to recognize that when God communicates to us, He communicates to us through His Word. And when we read any passage that speaks of God's love toward us, then to receive it as His Word, as His expression of His love into our lives. Somebody has uh, declared of the Bible and Paul's letters within the New Testament that they're love letters written by God. It's a good imagery in our mind. Everything in, that is in the Bible comes from God, comes from His heart of love toward us. In every expression that He makes to us of His love, we're to receive it as if He were speaking it right to us. And of course, as we read it in the Word of God, the Holy Spirit is quick to give life to it and to make us realize this is what our Heavenly Father has to say to us about His love for us. Well, the second way we know that God loves us is not, that, not just that He declares it, but that He continually demonstrates it to us. Uh, he shows us His love continually by the way that He treats us, how He handles us in the, in the relationship and treats us within that relationship. I remember back in 1964, I was nine years old, you could do the math, and, uh, and that, that year, the big movie of that year was My Fair Lady. And uh, I was being raised in Napa, California, and for some reason, My Fair Lady, which won all the Academy Awards, or so many of them that year, everybody wanted to see My Fair Lady. My parents were not uh, inclined to take us ever to the movies, and it didn't seem to be of much interest to them. And, uh, but for some reason, they, it wasn't showing in Napa, it was showing in Vallejo. We all piled into the car, which was unheard of, to go see a movie, and we went to Vallejo to see uh, My Fair Lady. And uh, not a single uh, car chase in it, uh, not a single car wreck uh, or crash in it. There were no Avengers in it at all. There were no superheroes in it. But I remember the movie having an impact, impact on me, even at nine years old, on a, on a lot of levels. And uh, the story is, it, it, it stars uh, Audrey Hepburn and Rex Harrison, and, uh, and Audrey Hepburn plays this uh, young woman who is like um, very, very poor in London, and she sells flowers to be able to make a living day in and day out, and her English is absolutely horrible. She speaks Cockney and… Um, uh, uh, 
well, if you're going to speak Cockney to a T, she could do it. And, and that's what she's just butchering the English language. And uh, Rex Harrison comes uh, upon her in, in the course of the movie, and he is a professor of phonetics. And, uh, and he's listening to her butcher the English language, and somehow uh, this uh, uh, kind of contract occurs or the challenge that is made that, uh, that, that somehow he could prove his great skill and his ability by teaching her proper English. And so the movie goes on, and she becomes his pupil. And in the course of that movie, uh, she, become, she falls in love with him as he is uh, tutoring her, and uh, he's completely oblivious to all of it, and he's merely content to uh, just teach her proper pronunciation of new words that he's introducing into her vocabulary. And, uh, and it's a musical. It's probably the last musical I've ever seen. Uh, I do like car wrecks and uh, stuff like that. But anyway, um, it, and, and so it's a musical, and she, in her frustration, uh, she breaks out in, in song, and one of the songs that she sings contains these words among other words. I won't sing it for you. I'll just, uh, uh, well, I'll just do it as Bob Dylan would do it. Words, words, words. No, that's not how it is. But a portion of the song went something like this. She sings, words, words, words. I'm so sick of words. I get words all day, all day through, first from him, now from you. Is that all you blighters can do? Don't talk of stars burning above. If you're in love, show me. Sing me no song. Read me no rhyme. Don't waste my time. Show me. Don't talk of June, uh, don't talk of fall, don't talk at all, show me. Never do I ever want to hear another word. There isn't one I haven't heard. I almost sang right there for those of you who know the movie. Uh, here we are together in what ought to be a dream. Say another word and I'll scream. And uh, it's interesting for a nine-year-old boy to process uh, this kind of emotion and uh, dynamic between a man and a woman, or the woman but not the man just yet and all. But it, it, it taught me at a young age that while words uh, expressing love are very, very important, uh, that love evidently also needs to be more than words. It also needs to be demonstrated, and that's what she desperately wanted from, uh, from the professor. And it is certainly true uh, that as eloquently and as powerfully as God speaks of His love for us, uh, His words pale in comparison to the demonstrations of His love within our lives. And His love is demonstrated supremely in the giving of His Son in order to provide us with the forgiveness of sin. We saw it in Romans chapter 5, verse 6. Allow me to read it to you again. Paul wrote, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He doesn't say God demonstrated His love, past tense. He says God demonstrates His love in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins and in His burial and in His resurrection. And He declares it to be a present tense demonstration 
of the love of God because while the demonstration occurred some 2,000 years ago, it is still to this day demonstrating the love of God for us. Jesus in the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, declared, For God so loved the world, in the context of the sacrifice of His Son, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. John, again, the Apostle John in 1 John 4, 9, uh, speaks about the same thing. He said, in this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, that is the full and satisfying payment for our sins. Jesus Himself spoke of this demonstration of God's love. And John 15, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Again, the Apostle John in this vein, by this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And the, the love of God de demonstrated supremely in the death, burial, and resurrection of the very Son of God. But His love is continually expressed to us as Christians on a daily basis. And the keeping of every single one of His promises in the Bible to us, not one of His promises has ever failed within our lives, and not one of His promises will ever fail. He keeps His Word to us as an expression of His love. He keeps His promises to supply us with daily bread and shelter and to give us uh, clothing, providing us with the daily necessities. And His love is even expressed in His discipline of us, His chastening uh, of us, His training of us as Christians. The writer of the book of Hebrews put it this way in Hebrews 12 verse 5, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by Him. For whom the Lord loves, He chastens and scourges every son whom He receives. I don't know that that isn't the single greatest expression of His love within my life. He doesn't let me get away with much. But it's an expression of His love in my life, that He cares about me. He loves me. He's not going to let me just run off uh, unhindered into what is going to, to destroy me or ruin my life or distract me. And even His chastening, His discipline, His training, and He can be very firm within our lives, is an expression of His uh, love. And it's important to realize that with God, love is not merely an emotion, but it's demonstrated in always what is doing best for us, always doing what is uh, for our uh, good welfare. 
It's a hard thing when you talk about love and you talk about the love of God, and we've got so many definitions of love floating around in the world. Most of them are very self-centered. Most of them will not even stand up in a difficult situation and tell someone the truth that they desperately need to hear to even save their life for another 24 hours, and, then, and, uh, and, and somehow that is love that I don't confront them with sin and when it's all self-love that keeps me from doing that. And the love that God has for us, the Greek word that's used for it in the New Testament, is the word agape. And it's the anyway love. It is, it is the love that always does what is best for the other person. And what is best for me is not always what is easiest for me. Every parent knows this about raising a child. And, uh, and what is best for me isn't always the funnest thing within my life. But God never takes His eye off of that ball. He never uh, succumbs to these weak, flimsy, actually unloving definitions of love that are in the, uh, the weakness of the culture around us. When He talks about loving us, He demonstrates it by always doing what is best for us. Best for us currently, best for us in, in terms of preparing us in our character uh, for the glory of heaven that we will one day uh, uh, stand in. And so he constantly and absolutely other-centeredly, uh, unselfishly on his part, seeks what is the very best for our ultimate welfare. And that's why so often when he even can take us into chastening and discipline, and we look at it and it seems so hard, and it looks like he's being so hard and he's pushing us, and it seems so loving at the time, and then some lapse of time goes by and we look back and we realize everything that he did there, where I thought it was because he didn't love me, it was because he did love me. He forced me into something that allowed me to then develop the character that he knew I would one day need a little bit later in life. And what coach in athletics anywhere in the whole world doesn't know something about that? And what uh, athlete who has ever had a decent coach doesn't understand this? The, the push, the push, the push that, is, that, that occurs there in order for us to be prepared for game day, to be prepared for harder days and harder things uh, that are coming. And it's an expression of, of God's love for us. He's always what it, doing, what, doing what is best for us. This is a firm love. This is a, a substantive love uh, a, a, that, that God has for us. Well, having posed the question, who shall separate us from the love of God, Paul then literally ransacks the universe in the, re the remainder, remaining part of the verses in an attempt to find something that can successfully uh, separate us from uh, God's love. And the interesting thing is he makes this search of what in the world can separate us from the love of God. Wonderfully, he comes up completely empty-handed. There is nothing that could separate us from uh, the love of God. And so when he poses these questions, like in, uh, there in verse 35, shall tribulation 
or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or the sword. As he poses those questions, they're rhetorical questions. They are questions that are given in the form of the answer. Uh, they're not endowed in any way. And so Paul is declaring that he knows nothing can separate us from the love of God. And, and he proceeds to run through a very broad cross-section of things in order to show us that nothing can uh, do so. And so I want to follow him on his uh, little journey here ever so briefly, but I do want to, to follow him here, the journey that he, he puts before us. But, but before we do that, uh, it is vital that we notice that in this passage, Paul is, does not say that the love of God will separate us from these things. He says that these things will not separate us from the love of God. And that is a major distinction. Many, many people, many, many Christians live their life under the impression that God's love will separate me from all of the hardships that Paul describes here in these verses. And if that is my misunderstanding of the love of God, then I'm going to be greatly disappointed uh, in, in my life, or I'm going to be constantly doubting the love of God because He does allow these kind of things uh, in, into, our into our lives. He just doesn't allow them to separate us uh, from uh, 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 separate us from His, His love. The love uh, of God means, doesn't mean that we'll be spared these, these things. That's not what's being promised. It's not promised here. It's not promised anywhere in the Bible. That's, a, that's the big mistake that Job's uh, friends made, didn't they? I mean, for 30-plus chapters, I mean, on and on and on and on, Job has gone through these terrible catastrophes. I mean, uh, the, his life in the book of Job is the only thing that makes these verses pale in comparison. Uh, actually, these verses are stronger because it includes death and, and Job didn't die in the, the great trial that he went through. But his friends were convinced that uh, the reason he was going through all of these problems that had befallen him was because there had to be secret sin within his life. Because these kind of things don't happen to good people. They don't happen to righteous Christians or serious uh, kind of Christians. And so on and on and on they went trying to get him to confess his, his secret sin. And the problem is, is they're not only disheartening Job, but they're completely misrepre misrepresenting uh, God. God was behind what was going on there, but giving the impression that, that is like our default position as Christians, that if we live a good life, if we're relatively obedient, that we'll be spared these kind of things in life. And then when these things come into our life, uh, it must mean that He doesn't love us, and these circumstances then end up challenging our, our view of the love of God. God was so concerned and so disliked being misrepresented by these friends of Job that He would not let it go until they had admitted their wrongdoing to Job and then had offered uh, burnt sacrifices in order to receive the forgiveness of, of God's sin, of their sin. So this is the kind of the, the prevailing uh, view so often related to, uh, 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 to suffering, that somehow it must mean that God is, is uh, 
is upset with us. And the love of God doesn't mean that we're going to be spared. The, the things that Paul lists here, it is manifested the love of God is in the fact that we successfully navigate these things in life. And that we get to, uh, uh, come out of these kind of things in life and we come to the other side of them. And that we end up being more than conquerors. And that we go through any and all of these things or some or most of these things in the course of our Christian life. And as we go through them, we find that we're still standing at the end of them. We're still in the battle, not only with our faith firmly intact, but our faith deepened by the difficulty and, and refined by the difficulty. And when you think about it as a Christian, and I think about it in my own life, and the suffering and the difficulty that we have been through, and we marvel at what we have been through and that we're still standing as we do, and there's only one explanation for it. It isn't our discipline, it isn't our determination, it isn't even our love for God that gets us through those kind of seasons and difficulties. It is the love of God that, uh, that, uh, for us and the love of God at work in our lives and the love of God poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit situation by situation uh, in life. And you notice the things that he, that he lists. I won't go into any kind of depth here except that uh, enough to recognize that, uh, that uh, it, it, to, re to recognize them related to our own lives. He talks about in, in verse uh, 35, tribulation to start. And tribulation is the Greek word thalipsis. It was used in the ancient world for a punishment that they gave to criminals or people that were, they were trying to get a confession out of. They put a great boulder upon their chest so much so that they couldn't uh, uh, inhale after they had exhaled and they would be slowly crushed by the boulder and suffocate. And he's talking about this kind of a difficulty, these kind of tribulations that occur uh, within life. It's the kind of trial that crushes you. It's the kind of trial that you look at and you wonder whether you're ever uh, going to uh, survive it. And, and uh, Jesus used the very, very word, Greek word, thalipsis, in John chapter 16, verse 33, that Paul uses here for tribulation when he said to us as Christians, these things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have thalipsis. You shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And even the deepest trials that we wonder whether we will ever survive, they do not separate us from the love of God. And when we come up to the surface on the other side of them, we know that it's occurred because of the greatness of God's love for us. He speaks there of distress, and the word literally means narrowness. It means to be pressed in, and it speaks about the anxiety that we feel inside when we're in the middle of this depth of trial, the worries, the concerns, and the anguish that we feel because of the suffering and the trials that we find ourselves in, and yet we find even there the, the love of God it doesn't fail us. We're not separated from it. He talks about persecution, and that is open hostility. 
uh, against us as Christians for simply being Christians. And while that's not a, a heavy thing within our culture, though it's ratcheting up, this is something that many Christians in parts of the world face every single day in their lives. A persecution does not separate us from the love of God, nor does famine. And the idea is the famine that can come into our lives by virtue of the persecution. Any famine, really, but, but by virtue of persecution. And in many parts of the world, depending on whether how secular they are, or, or what their religious, uh, the religious system that uh, dominates the culture for you to become a Christian means no job for you. There's no way to earn a living. There's no way to put food on the table. And yet even famine doesn't separate us from the love of God, nor does nakedness. Again, in the context of persecution. I mean, if, you, if we're down to our last uh, quarters within our pocket, we're going to try to do uh, two things with whatever money we have. We're going uh, to try and leverage that to as many calories as this can buy to put in our bodies so that we can live and to make sure that we got some clothing on our body in, in order to, to cover it. And when you're talking about nakedness, Paul is talking about when life is utterly destitute, the most destitute condition that we can find ourselves in. He talks about peril, and, and this speaks of danger of any kind that we may face in life, and, and certainly as a Christian. The sword he speaks about, talking about execution or martyrdom uh, in, in following Christ. And in verse 36, he quotes Psalm 44, uh, verse 22, for your sake we are killed all the day long. Uh, we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. And what Paul is declaring is, is that these kind of trials and difficulties have marked God's people, Old Testament, New Testament and yet never separated us, uh, separate us from the love of God. When he talks about we're accounted as sheep for the slaughter, he's talking about even in seasons in human history, and we are in one of those seasons, depending on what part of the world that you're in, where Christians are taken and slaughtered uh, for their faith as casually as somebody might take and uh, slaughter a, a, a sheep in order to provide a dinner for the family. And even that doesn't separate us from, from the love of God. He tells us in verse 37 that in all of it we're more than uh, conquerors. And in other words, what do we discover in the midst of all of these trials, all of these difficulties, if and when they come into our lives as Christians? We discover that not only do these things not separate us from the love of God, but in the middle of these things, because of the love of God, we are more than conquerors uh, while in these things, and, and all of which we owe to God and His love for us. A conqueror is someone who leaves the battlefield victorious. To be more than a conqueror is to be someone who enters the battlefield before the battle knowing that they will win the battle. And that's what Paul is telling us. Because of the love of God, we are more than conquerors in any circumstance that we find ourselves in. 
However the battle might appear at the moment to us, the love of God will make sure that we are victorious. The outcome of the battle, our victory, is never in doubt. Paul then moves on to his second list of things that can't separate us from the love of God in verse 38 and verse 39. And if you thought the first list was amazing, the second list is even more uh, amazing as he drives home the point and unmistakably that nothing can separate us from uh, the, the love of God. The list includes in verse uh, 38, he said, for I am persuaded that neither death uh, death and, and all that's involved in death will never ever separate us uh, from the love of God. Not any of the pain of it, not any of the terror of it. Uh, one of my favorite verses in regards to the presence of the Lord in a scene of death is uh, Psalm 116, verse 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. And what the psalmist is communicating is that at the death of every single Christian, that God is present there in all of His fullness and all of His love. Life can't separate us from the love of God, uh, not, in, not in all of the highs of it, not in all of the lows of it, everything that we experience in life, uh, nothing of it can separate us from the love of God. None of the temptations that we face in it can separate us from uh, the love of God. And sometimes life is harder than death. And I, I, many times I've talked with people through the years as a pastor who've come to a place in their life where life is so hard, so often they're older and they're dealing with different things, but not always. But life has become so hard for them that all they want to do is die, not to take their life, but just to die and be done with this life and get into heaven. And what they're confessing is what we all know in certain seasons within our life. One time or another, we realize, we look at the situation that we're in and we realize this is harder than death. And I wonder how many of us in this room have cried in the midst of the difficulties that Paul's describing here and say, Lord, would you please just take me home? to get me out of the middle of all of this. Sometimes life is harder than death. He describes angels and principalities and powers as being unable to separate us from the love of God. This is talking about the entire spiritual realm, demonic realm. Uh, the devil himself, if the entire demonic realm came against any one of us uh, in, in, individually, that it couldn't separate us from the love of God no matter how great the spiritual warfare might be. He talks about things present or things to come. In other words, we don't have to uh, fear anything that we're facing currently. We don't have to wonder if there's going to be something that I'm in the middle of now that's going to take a turn for the worse or something out of the blue that's going to occur in my life in the future that will somehow be successful in separating me uh, from uh, the will of God, God's, uh, the love of God. God's love is greater than them all. He talks about height or depth. And again, life in all of its highs and all of its lows. And, and both of them have their challenges. 
They cannot separate us from uh, the love of God. And he closes by declaring, uh, nor any other created uh, thing. And, uh, and for, it, I know Paul's not trying to be humorous, but as a pastor, I can't help but notice the humor. Paul could write an entire list like he's written here to drive home the point that nothing can separate you from the love of God. And there are people in this room, I say it affectionately, and Christians in the world will say, well, they didn't list what I'm in the middle of. You know, we're always the odd case, you know. And they're always the exception. We'll be the violation. It's so sad. I'm going to be the first person in human history that God fails in one of His promises to us. And so when Paul says, or any created thing, he's closing the loop. There are no loopholes here. There are no exceptions here. Nothing that you and I can come up with. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Because in the universe, in the everything, there are only two things. There, ultimately, there is a creator and there is the creation. And God loves us. And, and, and then, as Paul says here, nothing, in, in, created thing, and nothing outside of God can ever separate us from the love of God. And he just seals it up with, with such a, a reassurance that is just very, very uh, powerful. The, in, in verse 38, when Paul prefaces there and he says, for I am persuaded, as he, as he introduces the list that he, the second list that he, he declares there, it's interesting to me that the Holy Spirit had Paul add his own witness to all of this. And, and uh, when Paul says, for I am persuaded, and I think it's important to realize this isn't some uh, Johnny come lately, whatever that means, in terms of the Christian life. I'll Google it later. Um, this is the Apostle Paul. And one of the things that is fascinating to re realize is Paul declares all of these things that virtually everything he lists in the two lists that are here were things that he had experienced in the course of his Christian life, in the course of his Christian service, and most specifically detailed in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 26, and I'll just prime the pump without reading all of it to you, but where he spoke in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, prisons more frequently, in deaths often, from the Jews I received 40 stripes minus one, and so forth and so forth. And Paul declares that through all of it, that He wants every reader of the book of Romans, and the Holy Spirit wants us to understand it too, right into this room here uh, this morning, that to realize, Paul says, that none of these things ever separated me from the love of God, that nothing has ever been successful in disrupting my relationship with Him or my relationship with the love of Christ. And Paul declares it as a reassurance that what God in the power of the Holy Spirit had been in his life, he will also be in our lives as well. And the, and the idea is if, if none of these things in the life of Paul, all of these things even put together couldn't separate him from the love of God, well, very few of us, probably none of us, could put a list up against Paul's that would, would rival it. 
And so, what Paul has declared here is, is true of each of us, and it's good to hear that. And this is the confidence. This is the confidence that God wants us to have in His love for us. That God's love and all of its multifacetedness and, and, and multifaceted expressions and manifestations, it will never fail us in the midst of life and all that life holds. And it hasn't failed us yet. And the only explanation for how we have come this far as Christians is the love of God. And what the love of God has been to us thus far, it will be to us all the way into glory and beyond. So why do we sit here this morning as Christians, seated, clothed in our right minds, and having successfully navigated these things in life thus far, badly scarred by them, beaten up by them. The outward man is perishing, but the inward man's being renewed day by day. And how are we at this place as Christians this morning, having navigated them, these things in life thus far, and then come out on the other side of them, more than conquerors, still standing, still in the battle, still walking with God, not only with our, our faith firmly intact, but our faith as a result of these things deeper and purer than ever before. And there's only one explanation for it, and that is the love of God, the love of God at work in our lives, expressed in His grace and His mercy, in His forgiveness in His faithfulness, in His power, in His firm grip upon our lives, and so much more. All of those things are powerful in their own right, but all of those things are merely manifestations of His love. His faithfulness is a manifestation of His love. His grace and mercy is a demonstration of His love. His forgiveness is a demonstration of His love, and so forth. And what an amazing thing it is to be able to sit here this morning and to be a Christian and to realize the awesome truth that we are loved by God. I remember when Karen and I were uh, going together, uh, you know, we somehow, I think it was her parents' uh, record collection, vinyl collection, and we got a hold of um, Nat King Cole's greatest hits. And uh, it might have been Nature Boy was the song, but there's a line uh, in, in that song that goes, the greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love in return. And uh, you can't find much fault with that in terms of, of life on a human level. And what love brings to life is priceless. It's indescribable. But then to stop and think about how rich we are and how blessed we are to be loved by God and to know it's true is a witness of the Holy Spirit. 
and to be loved by God in a way that no other human being can love us. And the funny thing about the love of God is that there's that sense in which we'll always just be scratching the surface related to it. We can become as confident as we can, and God wants us to become as confident in His love as we could possibly be. But Paul, as he writes to the church at Ephesus in chapter 3, and he prays for that church, he talks about his desire that they would comprehend the love of God, which is unknowable. It is unknowable. And we begin to put a teaspoon of love upon us or a cup of love of God upon us, and we think we're tapping it out. You can fall into an ocean of it. And it goes on far, far beyond that. The love of God will never, ever fail us. And this God that we know, and this God that has saved us, not only communicates His love to us, but He has demonstrated it, and He continues to demonstrate it within our life. How incredible is it to be the object of the very love of God. And what a person it makes us into is that truth and that reality grows within our lives and what it frees us from. I don't know how highly you think of yourself or or any, we're in like the self-esteem capital of the universe in the United States. Everybody thinks they're so wonderful. I'm not on Instagram. I don't want to see your pictures. I don't think you're that important. Go pray for somebody. And I, okay, that, was a, that, that cut a little deeper than I wanted it uh, to cut. Now I've, I've lost my, my train of thought related to it but to just stop and think about who we are, and we know what we are, and we know what we aren't, and what a marvel it is that at the end of our search for God, that we found a God. He didn't have to love us, by the way, but we found a God who loved us despite what we are and, and was eager then to demonstrate His love in the wonderful ways that He has done. It is amazing. Let's stand together now and we'll pray. Father, we thank You and we are humbled by Your love this morning and how infinite this essence of you, this part of your character is, and who can describe it, who can even begin to scratch the surface of it. But Lord, even as we scratch the surface of it, we thank you for what we see. We thank you for loving us. Thank you for caring for us. We acknowledge, Lord, that you didn't need to do that. You didn't need to be that kind of God. And we're thankful that at the end of our search, we did find you. We found a loving God at the end of that search. Thank you for your love in our lives. Thank you for all of the ways that you demonstrate it. 
Thank you for all of the expressions of your love in our life, those that we recognize, Lord, and then the greater multitude that we don't even recognize and notice, but you continue to lavish upon us. We bless you this morning, Lord, and thank you that nothing in all of life can separate us from this love of yours. And we thank you, Lord, in the name of the one who made it possible. In Jesus' name, amen.